From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Amazon to stop accepting Visa credit cards in the UK. Zilch becomes Europe's fastest ever unicorn. And Miramax sues Quentin Tarantino over Pulp Fiction NFTs. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up here at 11FS and hear a quick word from our sponsors. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios, which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. How does financial services get better? How does it get faster? And how does it get stronger? Come and help us answer those questions live in London on December 1st at the Fintech Insider After Dark, Better, Faster, Stronger. It's the latest live recording of our Fintech Insider podcast. That's right. We're back in front of a live studio audience. Stick around after the show for drinks, exclusive swag, and a chance to mingle with your favorite Fintech Insider hosts, as well as other Fintech fans. Find out more and get your free ticket now at bit.ly forward slash after dark, better, faster, stronger. That's bit.ly forward slash after dark, better, faster, stronger. Welcome to episode 58 of Fintech Insider. My name's Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by the one and only Benjamin Ensor, who's Director of Research at 11FS. How are you doing, Ben? I'm really, really well. Thank uh, you. This is our first co-hosting duty. I'm feeling good about this. It's our first one together, yeah. Yeah, we've done lots of work together, but never had the pleasure of being on the show. So excited for this. And of course, uh, we're not alone. We're joined by some excellent guests making a Welcome, welcome return. It's the one and only Emily Nicole, who's fintech correspondent at Financial News. How are you doing, Emily? You good? Yeah, I'm doing great. We haven't been on the show together either for a long time, so it's good to be back. I know, it's a bit of a reunion. Um, I'm feeling that. It's it, it's definitely uh, heading into the season for reunions. And making a debut on Fintech Insider, we're delighted to welcome Claire McKeeve, who's CEO of Talent House. How are you doing, Claire? I'm great. Lovely to meet you guys. Thanks for inviting me. You're very, very welcome. We'll be getting to a little news announcement from you later on, but can you give us some background on Talent House, please? Yeah, for sure. And and as I said, great to be on uh, the show and really talk about what we're doing in the creator economy primarily. Um, But Talent House as a primary is a creative powerhouse uh, and it encompasses four additional platforms as well through multiple acquisitions that we've been conducting. And collectively, what we now have is 14 and a half million members, of which over 3 million of them are professional creatives. And what we've done is what we believe we've done anyway, is we've radically innovated the way creative content is generated. And we work with brand partners such as Warners and Snapchat and Facebook and give them access to this creative community through our creative content as a service. And really importantly, and we'll come on and talk about that later with with sort of one of our new um, launches uh, this week, our mission is very much centered around how we enable creatives globally to thrive both economically as well as socially. So everything that we're doing with LOU, which we'll talk about, is very much geared towards that. Exciting stuff. Well, 
foreshadowing aside, we better get to the news. Um, and the first story uh, came from everywhere this week, but we picked it up from BBC News. This is Amazon are going to stop accepting Visa credit cards in the UK from the 19th of January. It said the move was due to high credit card transaction fees, uh, but said Visa debit cards would still be accepted. Amazon said the cost of accepting card payments continues to be an obstacle for businesses striving to provide the best prices for consumers. The online giant said those costs should be going down over time due to advances in technology. But instead, they continue to stay high or even rise. A Visa spokesperson said, we are very disappointed that Amazon is threatening. I don't know why I put on that voice then. Um, (laughs) We are very disappointed that Amazon is threatening to restrict consumer choice in the future. When consumer choice is limited, nobody wins. Emily, um, I'm going to come to you first on this. Uh, what's, uh, What's going on behind the scenes here? What are you hearing? What should we know about this story? Well, I think the interesting thing that all of us probably first thought when we saw this story was interchange fees, right? Amazon and other companies who operate in the UK have never been happy about how expensive interchange fees are here in Europe. Um, UK is no different. It's one of the things that has enabled neobanks to really thrive here because they can make a bit more money on them. And also in the US, I guess. But on that, so everybody thought, you know, perhaps that was what's behind it. But actually, Amazon has said it's not just interchange. They think that Visa charges service fees that are too high, which then makes it difficult for them to prioritise credit card payments. But to be honest, I mean, I guess it depends how much you use a, a physical credit card anymore. We've got a lot more innovations in the credit space now. Curve being one, they were very happy with this announcement because they, I mean, obviously you could retroactively put it on your credit card with Curve after the fact. And then also buy now, pay later. As that comes to the fore, do you really need a Visa credit card to do that if that's what you want to to use on your Amazon account? So I don't, it seems a bit more like a, a business-to-business tussle rather than something that might actually impact consumers, but we'll see. And I think on that, uh, Benjamin, it's probably worth stepping back to what happened with interchange fees in Europe post-Brexit. So do you want to just unpack sort of the, the some of the differences in pricing there? Yeah, because actually I think there's two elephants in the room here. So elephant number one is Brexit. Yeah. Elephant number two is tax. So Brexit matters because because the, the UK has left the EU, the EU's caps on uh, debit and credit card fees within the EU no longer apply because the UK is now outside the European economic area, which means that Visa can impose higher interchange fees on merchants that are doing trade between Europe and the UK. How does that affect Amazon UK tax? Amazon UK actually trades through, I believe, Luxembourg. And I think that's why Amazon is getting caught out here, because Amazon is actually operating out of Europe into the UK for tax purposes, because you'll notice very few of the other UK retailers getting bothered about this, because if you're UK domiciled, you're not getting these higher interchanges. So both Visa and MasterCard have raised their interchange for UK customers paying European merchants. And because of a combination of Brexit and tax, Amazon's got caught out. But if you work it out, Amazon did, what is it, 20 billion in revenue in the UK last year. And so that the interchange on that, even, you know, uh, these tiny, tiny movements is hundreds (laughs) of millions of pounds. So you can see why Amazon is worked up about it. And I think, Emily, you're probably right as well, that there's service charges in here as well. Mm -hmm. So a very small proportion of a very large business mm-hmm. is a lot of money. 
It, it is indeed. And, and I think uh, that comes back to the point that Brexit and, and tax do do uh, do play here and those service charges could be another thing. Claire, what are your thoughts when you saw this story? Um, per Emily, is it a tussle between two giants? Is it all economics? I think it is around the economics and I think it is a tussle. And I think what we'll end up seeing is Visa renegotiating. I think they're quite an innovative company anyway. Um, and I see, and I can foresee that they'll come back with a solution. Emily, you said something interesting about buy now, pay later. And we've certainly seen some large partnerships from Amazon, I think, with a firm in the US on the buy now, pay later space. Um, the credit market's really changing. Sort of unpack for me um, what's what's happening in um, the credit market and why you thought buy now, pay later and that sort of space could, could, be, uh, could be coming more after the credit cards and could even be a threat to somebody like Visa. Well, I think it, it all stems to the fact that buy now, pay later has access, access to the checkout process that credit cards don't. With a credit card, you're still having to pull a card out your wallet, type in the card number, like do do all that kind of stuff manually. Whereas when you get to the checkout, at least for most online merchants that have partnered with people like Klarna, you're presented with buy now, pay later as an option immediately. It's a little bit like how PayPal's in there too, where you can choose PayPal as an option. And then it, as long as you're signed in, it'll just automatically do everything for you. And it's, it's you know, more frictionless. And so I think that's why BNPL is, is a major disruptor to the credit market, not just because obviously it can be interest-free for longer periods than credit cards can. Um, there's also softer credit checks and all the other reasons why the government in the UK is at least very worried about buy now, pay later. Um, it, that frictionless process at the checkout is really important to tech companies because it keeps the buyer activated for longer, makes you want to buy with them again. And therefore, buy now, pay later firms and their partnerships are really valuable to companies like Amazon, whereas they really can't get that one-on-one with credit cards in the same way. I'm, I'm going to challenge you on the frictionless um, checkout because Amazon invented uh, frictionless checkout. I mean, anybody who's ever gone on Amazon's website while slightly drunk will know just how easy <laughs> that one-click checkout is. So, Speaking from experience. <laughs> uh, no, no, none at all. <laughs> so, so, you know, Amazon with that one-click checkout already had the frictionless thing. I think you're right, Emily, about, you know, buy now, pay later makes it easier because you can defer the pain of paying. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you made, you made a series of great points. I don't think you're quite being fair to Amazon on frictionless checkout because Amazon but, but I, I has doubt a very that's, frictionless checkout. I, I doubt that's a user experience thing and more um, you increase your conversion by offering buy now, pay later, not just from the experience, but also from that deferred payment yes. piece. So, yes. so it, 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 you kind of end up in the same place where your conversion goes up, your repeat um, payments increase. So as a merchant, it becomes a, a bit of a no-brainer and, and really, really uh, difficult. But what about the customer side of this? So there's millions of Britons who have Visa credit cards across Barclay card, HSBC. This is potentially really a bit of a blow right before Christmas. Um, okay, granted, it'll probably be in the it's new year. They feel Christmas, it. Isn't it? Um, it'll be in the new year. But Amazon sent out an email to so many of those customers saying we're, we're not going to support this anymore. They are offering a twenty pounds off, so around about what thirty dollars off their next purchase using an alternative payment method in order to encourage them to update their payments. But this isn't particularly customer centric, is it, Claire? I think it's interesting. I, I think it's worth noting how many people within the UK are reliant on that one credit card as well. And actually, I think they tend to have a wallet. And especially when you're looking at Gen Zs and millennials, they have multiple 
different avenues to pay for for their products. So I don't think they're that stricken with a visa specific uh, credit card. So um, I do think what you'll see is more, you know, moving towards the more traditional models with, on, on Amazon and, and using the Amazon card, for example, as a payment method as well. And the, of course, the payday, I call them payday loans, but um, uh, buy now, pay later schemes as well, uh, which is quite frightening. <laughs> that one stung. I felt, <laughs> I'm sure they all felt that. But um there's a there's an international element here as well. Like this is not the UK is 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 not the only market in town by by a long stretch as we know. Uh, early in the year, Amazon announced a 0.5 percent surcharge to purchases made using Visa credit cards in Australia and Singapore. Amazon.com Inc is considering shifting its popular co-branded credit card to Mastercard. Uh, I mean, so th- this is a, a battle being fought across the globe between these two organizations. And there was a similar story in Russia as well, where one of the Russian, uh, large Russian e-commerce players, I think it was called Wild Berries, I don't know my Russian market as well as I should, um, had a similar dispute mm-hmm. with Amazon uh, earlier this, sorry, not with Amazon, with Visa earlier this year. Um, I understood from Singapore that actually that, resulted in a lot of money moving to MasterCard, a lot of trade moving from Visa to MasterCard. Um, So yes, this is a global story. I think that's why people are responding to what's going on in the UK, because they can see that this could very easily happen in other markets. There is this Brexit dimension in the UK that's triggered it, but this battle between big merchants and the card networks over interchange is going to keep rolling. And when you operate at Amazon scale, then you're so price sensitive, as you say, to to, to those to those individual pieces. Uh, the, the amounts involved here are staggering, you know, because uh, you know we don't think of interchange because it's so small, or indeed the surface fees. But actually, over the billions of trade that Amazon does, it really adds up. When you operate at scale, you know, when you're a relatively small shop and you're selling things at sort of ten dollars, ten pounds, suddenly, you know, two percent of that fee isn't isn't so material to you. One percent of that fee doesn't make a great deal of difference. It can over time, but it depends on the volume you're selling. If you're at Amazon scale, those numbers really start to add up. And I think this is why the Squares and the PayPal's can charge the bottom end of the market. You know, two, one, two. Three percent because you get much lower volume. So that interchange fee is is such a, a key thing for those larger merchants. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left on this, Emily. Where do you think this goes? Are, are we going to see sort of this go down to the wire in this tug of war before January the nineteenth? Are they going to sort this out, um, or is this going to be uh, open warfare from here? I mean, to be honest, I think the ball's in in Visa's court, right? It depends how much Visa is really making from customers using their credit cards on Amazon in the UK um, and whether or not they view that as something that they really need to protect and safeguard. Because as you said, we've seen a a surcharge happen for customers using Amazon and Visa credit cards in, in Singapore and Australia already. So therefore, if you were to look at it from Amazon's perspective, they can live with it, right? Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I almost feel like it's not going to get resolved before then, and that it might just be a way of operating. It, it almost feels a little bit like how you can't use Amex in a lot of places, mm-hmm. and maybe that'll be the way that it has to be for Visa in future as well. Part of me does wonder how this might play out in terms of competition and antitrust, because Amazon has already gotten in trouble for a lot of antitrust-related concerns Absolutely. in the EU before. Um, I doubt the Visa credit card market is so big that it just in the UK alienating them would trigger that. But it, it's a possibility. Alrighty. Well, I'm going to move us to the next story. Um, this one comes from CNBC. And this is Zilch becoming Europe's fastest ever unicorn with a 2 
billion valuation. So buy now, pay later provider Zilch has closed a $110 million Series C round, pushing its valuation to $2 billion. Headquartered in London, Zilch is now the fastest European company to become a unicorn uh, from its Series A. This oversubscribed round was led by Ventura Capital and Ghost Ventures, uh, and the round just closed three and a half weeks from launch. Zilch was founded by Philip Bellamont and was one of the first BNPL providers in the UK to receive a consumer credit license from the FCA. They also secured a lending license in California earlier this year. Zilch plans to launch in the USA in early 2022 and across the rest of the EU soon thereafter. To get a little bit more about Zilch's plans for funding and what it means to be crowned Europe's fastest ever unicorn, we spoke to the founder and CEO of Zilch. So we're going to be making use of the proceeds from this funding round to focus on a couple of things in the business. The first is we're going to be doubling down on the scaling out of our business in the UK. And so that really means we're going to be investing furthermore in the in the platform, the product, uh, and of course, marketing to our customers to build greater exposure for our brand and business to, to our customer base. Second to that, and really importantly, we're going to be doubling down on building out our team. And that's going to be a big focus on engineers, data scientists, and customer support. And we're going to be hiring almost 125 people over the next 12 months, mostly based out of Miami, our headquarters for the USA. And we're going to be adding significantly to the team in London, which is about 200 people strong in Victoria right now. Becoming Europe's fastest ever unicorn is obviously hugely exciting for us here at Zilch. And we do feel that this is a phenomenal vindication of what we're doing in building our BNPL 2.0 model. So, you know, we're really excited about that. But of course, you know, this, this is a huge amount of responsibility. And we all certainly really appreciate that our stakeholders and our customers have placed this responsibility in our hands to go and deliver. And so, you know, we really are taking some time to celebrate how far we've come. It's an amazing milestone. But at the same time, we realize that scoreboard is back to zero, zero. We've got to keep our heads down and focus on the work and really go and continue delivering for all of our customers in the market. Thank you so much to Philip. Benjamin, I'm going to come to you first on this one. Um, launching in the United States, we obviously saw Afterpay do pretty well after they launched in the US. Um, do you think the funding round is largely around that? And is there anything about Zilch in particular that stands out versus their competitors uh, in, in those various markets? It's a crowded market. You know, There are a lot of buy now, pay later providers out there. I think you know the, the approach they're trying to take of, of working through MasterCard and trying to um, partner that way rather than partnering with the retailers is interesting. Is it really mm-hmm. enough to break through? I think is the United States is vast. Mm-hmm. It's such a big market that even if you only succeed with one in ten customers, that's still you know more than most European countries. So you know you only have to have a very small slice of that huge pie to do to be doing really quite well. So yeah, I think there is an opportunity. You know, there's such a big market. There are so many retailers out there. Is there anything going on here, Emily, where we're in a bit of a boom for buy now, pay later because credit is cheap? Like these buy now, pay later providers are in an interesting spot, but we're at an interesting point in funding for fintech generally. I mean, funding is is white hot. Uh, startups and tech generally are white hot. Um, you've got a firm out in the public markets. How much of this is people buying zilch and buying the trend? What do, what do you think there? Well, you're right that funding is, is hot, especially for buy now, pay later. But 
it doesn't necessarily feel like this is one of those trends where we're seeing it being powered by VC money. There's a little bit of that in the expansion side of things. But unlike digital banks, where they've had to run at losses for years, I mean, I, I'm not too sure about all of them, but at least in Klarna's books, it was only it was profitable for most of its early years. And it only started making a loss very recently because of how aggressively it's expanding. Therefore, with this kind of market, the idea of needing investors to really prop up your business and push yourself out there isn't as important as it is where we've seen in other parts of fintech. One thing I do think, though, about Zilch and whether or not it's going to be able to crack the market properly is that it will entirely depend on how it can appeal to millennials and Gen Z. Because the reason why I think credit is doing so well at the moment is because at least myself being kind of on the cusp of millennial and gen z i like to think i'm in the younger younger bracket credit is not something we're very comfortable with we all use debit cards at least in the uk and credit cards seem scary so things like buy now pay later which are packaged in ways to appeal to us are really exciting and we feel more comfortable using them especially because they come with these interest-free models and we don't get afraid you know we're going to have debtors and, and bailiffs knocking on our door if you were to fail to pay and in that sense, that will be really vital to whether or not Zilch can differentiate itself and expand and kind of, I guess, as you say, make itself stand out as buy now, pay later 2.0, because I think getting Gen Z and millennials comfortable with the idea of credit is really important. It's interesting that they are leading with that MasterCard and card partnership. It's all of the features of sort of your buy now, pay later shopping app just happens to have a card and you can use it in more places. It's uh, We've seen lots of the neobanks and challenger banks launch their own pay later products inside the app, but this is almost flipping it on its head and saying the app is for shopping, uh, kind of a, a, another approach, which you know I don't know if we'll see many copycats and, and other people start to do that. Um, what are your perspectives, Claire? Are we in a bit of a bubble here? How does this reflect on European fintech? Uh, what were your reflections? Um, I think it's quite exciting to see if this this company actually doing this well at such an early stage, first of all. I'm not in love with any uh, sort of credit scheme in general. Um, so the buy now, pay later, I think has, um, you know, I, I feel like it is a bubble that's going to burst and I think it could be pretty toxic. But I think they're doing it differently. And I think that's that's a very positive thing. I think um, the fact it's a short repayment period compared to their competitors in the market means that you're not really enabling those users to run up long term and three months is long term um, when you're when you're 18 uh, years old. So I think it's, I think that's quite a positive thing. But I also do wonder how much of the hype around this company is around the data that they're managing to gather as mm. a result of the structure that they've adopted. And you know the powers is so much around the data and knowing the customer. Um, and how how well and how deep you can get to know that customer. And my understanding, um, certainly with Zilch, is you know that's really quite acute in this case, especially compared to its competitors. Interesting. Yeah. So one of the major advantages of buy now pay later is unlike the traditional card schemes, it's very hard to tell um, as a merchant uh, unless they bought it through your website what the customer is doing off your website. So if they go somewhere else, I've now lost complete visibility. I don't know what they bought after they came to my website. And the Klarna's and the the uh, the firms of the world through their shopping app start to show you that and give you access to that data to help you reactivate those customers and bring them back to, to your store, which again, increases that repeat purchase, increases the average amount somebody's paying, which is, which is really, really exciting for the merchant. But 
I wonder, Benjamin, is there a risk, as, as sort of Claire was intimating there, that this is the next um, sort of payday lenders, the next consumer you know, kind of credit controversy waiting to happen? And how do we avoid that if it is? Weren't you the guy defending buy now, pay later in our after dark a couple of months ago? I, I, I just asked the questions. <laughs> I just asked the questions. Yes, I think there, you know, I think there, I think there is a risk, um, you know, to the to, to, to the point that, that that both of our both of our guests were making. There is a risk that people start buying too much on credit, mm-hmm. and they start getting used to credit and used to buying things that they can't afford. And there is a risk that this becomes a bubble if we see the buy now, pay later companies competing too fiercely with each other. You know. I always think in lending, you know, any idiot can lend money. It's getting it back that's hard, yeah. right? So you can you can finance an awful lot of shopping, but if you're lending money in effect to people who can't pay you back, mm-hmm. that's going to come and bite you eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think there's a, there is a danger that there's a generation of people get growing up on credit, and at some point that gets sticky. Mm-hmm. If you know what you're doing with credit, it's fine. But if you're just thinking, hey, this is kind of free, that that come, can become a problem. That behaviour. It was interesting, uh, Emily, that uh, Square actually acquired Afterpay. And one of the things that they saw with Afterpay was re, uh, kind of uniting their cash app and their consumer payments business with their merchant payment business. Why do you think they, they saw that in the middle? And, and what is it about Buy Now, Pay Later that sort of starts to connect the dots for somebody like a Square um, and, and other folks like that? You know, PayPal have launched their own Buy Now, Pay Later capability. Is it just copy-paste um, fintech product development? Or is there something more going on there about connecting ecosystems? Well, actually, I think from Square's perspective, it's probably says something more about their business model and approach to this side of the world, because at least in the US, Cash App is widely used. Um, everybody's very familiar with it. But I mean, I remember when I first started coming on this podcast and Cash App had just arrived and Circle back then was also a similar product to Cash App. And we were talking about them, but nobody was really using them. And now they're pretty much dead here. Sorry, Square. So everybody who works there, very sorry if you're just calling your product dead. So they need to find another way to kind of get into this side of the market because you're not really going to be able to get your hands on consumer data in the same way through something like Cash App because we all have digital banks where we can transfer money easily, faster payment scheme and all the rest. Um, And so Afterpay represents that, essentially. It's a way for them to crack this market and get a little bit more of a handle on what Europe wants so they can then plan the next move. Um, Whether or not it's going to transform anything by having a square at the helm of Afterpay, I couldn't say. Interesting. So I thought about it more from a US context. I hadn't realized the the value of Afterpay to them potentially from a a European context. That's that's compelling. Of course, Square does have its sort of merchant acquiring business in Europe and and the UK in particular. You can use them, but they're not nearly as ubiquitous as they would be in the US or on the cash app side where they have 70 million customers. I think some three, four, five million merchants. I can't remember from from the top of my head. So this is going to be a space to watch for sure. Zilch and everybody else is coming for it. But uh, let's see where this goes in the cycle. I'm sure we'll come back to the story. We are just going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors. We'll be back shortly. At SAS, they help their customers make banking simple, safe, and rewarding for everybody. They support banks in their goal to treat every customer as individual, combining data from across the bank with external information and real-time context. They deliver unique insights and a deep understanding of customers' needs. By applying these insights at the right time, via the right channel, they help make every customer engagement with the bank a relevant, valuable, and seamless experience. 
SaaS enables banks to embed real-time intelligence in every interaction, helping them make smarter, faster decisions that transform customer experience. To find out more, search SaaS Banking. If you've been in payments for any length of time, you've seen the number of payment solutions explode. That's great for consumers, but incredibly complex for merchants and developers. That's where Primer comes in. Primer is the world's first automation platform for payments. With Primer, merchants and developers have all the underlying infrastructure and Lego blocks they need to build the best buying experiences for their customers. Learn more and book a demo at Primer.io. Welcome back to part two of the show. Uh, next story comes from UK Tech News, and this is about Talent House, Vodeno, and Ion Bank partnering to bring embedded banking services to creatives across Europe. With a global network of more than 3.5 million creatives and over 14 million members, Talent House sees an opportunity to do banking better for creatives, providing contextual financial services that are tailored to the community's specific needs. With the help of Vodeno and Iron Bank, Talent House will launch its banking service called LOU, uh, which will remove friction and fees. Great name, by the way. Um, speed up payments and give creators access to better financial services such as income advances. Claire, let's come to you first on this. How did the partnership come together and what issues were you seeing that led you to uh, want to move into the yeah, banking space. Yeah, several actually. And thank you for liking the name. It's actually, uh, Elo is one of our uh, sort of five platforms that we have. So, and it's the one with the greatest engagement and, and the biggest community. And so we thought that was appropriate for, for the launching of this project. But, you know, when we came to this, the, it wasn't like a, an idea overnight. We firstly wanted to really understand how our community was currently transacting and what they really needed to improve their personal professional outcomes. And so we had two really good sources um, of information uh, to, to base that on. First of all, we pay creatives. We pay them every day because brands come to us or agencies, they pay us, we take our cut and, and we pass 100% of the creator payments through to them. And when I got involved with Talent House three years ago now, it was a bit of an eye opener. And I've got 20 plus years in private equity. You think you've kind of seen it all by that point. But I couldn't believe the lack of sophistication within uh, the business and how those payments were being made. They were, they were terribly manual, uh, first of all. But creators want to be paid through either PayPal, through Bankwire on a good day, but equally in the US through physical checks. And not only creators asking for physical checks, agencies and brands were sending us physical checks. I didn't even know that was a thing. My checkbook is in the third drawer down in my desk and I pull it out to play the, pay the violin teacher and that's about it. I didn't realize in the US it was still such a, an important part um, of the business. And actually what we were seeing was a significant problem that we wanted to address. Our, our payments that we were making were episodic in nature. So we're not paying a hundred bucks every two weeks to the same creators. And so often those payments would get hung, especially on a PayPal um, a transfer because it hit, would hit a KYC issue because typically it's a few thousand dollars, but it's a few thousand dollars, you know, once every few months in, in most creators cases. So that would mean that the creator's waiting even longer for that money. And creators produce creative work because they love it, they're passionate about it, but that doesn't mean they don't need the money. They still have rent 
to pay and food to put on the table. So this is a significant problem. The other source of information that we saw, uh, sought before we made a decision was we asked our community. Um, so we conducted a survey. We had about 10,000 um, respondents on that in quite a detailed um, case. Um, and we really asked them, what problems can we help solve? What tools are you using? Um, and how, how can we help build um, a better offering rather than just one nascent um, product? And so with all those insights, we last summer, middle of COVID, great time to do it. And we ran this pretty involved um, RFI uh, process and asked over 80 companies across Europe, UK and USA, and um, which were our three target um, launch markets. And we asked them to respond to a pretty detailed list of questions about their ability to offer multiple services across a vertical banking product. And I would say at the end of that process, we were incredibly well informed about the tech, the rails and the ambitions of about 25 of the key players in these markets. Um, and so when we made that decision on who to partner with, and in this case for Central and Continental Europe, uh, it's with Vodino, we picked them because we could really see how they shared our vision for helping our community on their enterpriseation journey. And what I mean by that is taking an individual who's a creative or freelancer trying to work from home and they're trying to make a business out of it. How do they turn that into an enterprise? And they really under, understood that. And so we could really kick this off with an embedded finance solution, which integrates all the other ambitions that we have for this product ultimately. But on top of that with Vudino, I'd say, you know, they had best in class tech, which was important. The speed at which they could get us um, off to market was important. And the end to end stack, um, including that regulation with a relationship with Aon Bank in, in Belgium and the breadth of the banking services that they could offer around compliance and customer support. Fantastic. Well, uh, of course, the creative uh, economy and the creator economy, as you say, is is booming and uh, people can really follow their passion instead of relying on likes and views. They're actually monetizing it. There was a survey by the Influencer Marketing Factory that found that the creator economy is worth $104.2 billion globally and is increasing daily. And as you said, everybody forgets that they're not just creating the content, they're running the business and the back office and the admin that comes with dealing with all of those payment types. And, and we've they seen don't it. want to be. And yeah, and that's not why they started the business. And so you see companies like Stir in the US and Creative Juice starting to really go deeper into that problem space. Uh, and Benjamin, we often talk about what's the job to be done. And often, you know, financial services crosses over with these broader problem spaces. I think, you know, the, here the job to be done is, is more or less what Claire was saying. It's let me get on with running my business. Mm. Let me get on with setting up my business. Help me grow. Help me spend time doing the stuff that I love, mm. that I'm passionate about, that my customers care about. I'm not spending time chasing down payments or reconciling what's happened. And I think, you know, there's incredible logic to sort of digital business ecosystems. You know, if you can bring things into your platform and make it easier for the people using that platform to do what they're really great at and take care of kind of the administrivia of check payments or whatever, um, that's so powerful for people. Administrivia, underused word, admin, that is also <laughs> trivial. Can I, can I just take a moment for the, that choice of word? Uh, Emily, what are your thoughts on like this sort of uh, 
set of fintechs that solve a broader problem space. Um, have you seen other things like it? And what do you think about the creator space generally? I mean, I think the creator space is one that definitely needs catering to because it's all it's all in this idea of money not coming in very frequently. And so you have to learn to balance it more. And so while we need financial services products to assist them with that, we also need a bit more on the financial education side as well. Um, I think money management then becomes very vital for these kinds of creators and people working in that freelance gig economy space. We do have a few firms in the UK that are trying to focus on that. I met up with um, Moni's CEO, Norris Copel, not long ago, and he was talking about how the gig economy is really important to them. That's their demographic now. Um, doing things like being able to uh, help creators feel that they're safe if they can't pay their bills, monies can cover that with some of their tiers. Um, so there are different ways that all of these firms are trying to solve problems. One thing I think we're yet to see is somewhere where they do all of it. Obviously, Revolut is always the elephant in the room when we're talking about a super app, someone who can help you with all of the problems in all of your financial life. Um, and they maybe they've got a few things in the works that, that might be useful to the greater economy. But I do think a, a key player who differentiates and pulls ahead has yet to be found yeah it's going deeper into the space versus going wide and that's um that's kind of what we're seeing start to play out as the market matures if you are interested in the creator economy and banking it's worth checking out our bonus episode of fintech insider with uh latana zike who is co-founder and ceo xpo who busted some myths about creators versus influencers people do sort of confuse those two and i see claire nodding along with me um so definitely worth checking that out uh, unfortunately we are out of time on this story so claire Congratulations, and um, thank you for doing what you're doing for the creator space. Uh, the next story comes from TechCrunch, and this is about Nomad raising $3.4 million in a seed round to allow merchants to accept payments without hardware. So this is a platform that allows merchants to accept card payments on their phone with no extra hardware, and it's raised a $3.4 million seed round. Um, it was a part of Y Combinator's summer 2021 batch, and investors include Global Founders Capital, Kingsway, and Goodwater. Founded by Omar Kasim, Nomad launched in March 21 and has gained traction across markets including the US, UK, and UAE. The startup has acquired more than 4,700 merchants and processed volume has grown 11x since launch. I mean, that's why we had to include this story, right? Anything with 11 in it. Uh, <laughs> merchants can download Nomad on their phones and process in-person payments and payment links from their customers in over 135 currencies. And they can use different cards from Visa, MasterCard to American Express, Union Pay, and go contactless. To learn more about Nomad's plans for funding uh, and the problems they're looking to solve, we reached out to the founder and CEO, Omar Kassim. Uh, let's hear from Omar. What problem does Nomad's technology solve? Nomad makes it beautifully easy for merchants around the world to process card payments on their phone with no extra hardware. Our approach is super low friction, allowing a merchant to pull down the Nomad app from the Apple Play Store and get started in three or four minutes. We're currently focused on replacing legacy card hardware and making it easy for micro and small merchants to accept in-person payments, get paid online with simple payment links, whilst also allowing you to bring your entire team to the platform. We launched in March 2021 and are seeing early traction across multiple markets, including the US, UK and the UAE. We've acquired over 4,700 merchants and TPV has grown 11x since we launched. Our intent is to accelerate the growth that we're seeing by ramping up custom acquisition, continuing to build out our feature set, for example, improving bits like payout times and growing out our globally remote team. 
If we zoom out and cast an eye towards the future, our ambition is to build a financial operating system for forward-thinking businesses, whether it be holding money, spending money, accepting or making payments, or getting access to capital to grow. Our mission is to empower millions of entrepreneurs and startups around the world to start and grow their businesses with access to better payment tools and financial services. Thank you. Thank you, Omar. Uh, so uh, this is clearly um, really opening up access to banking and payments globally. In Saudi Arabia, only 3% of the more than 1 million registered businesses have access to bank credit. For the UAE, it can take nearly six months to set up a bank business bank account. This is doing for businesses what Square and PayPal did for, for, for Western markets. How much does uh, this potentially change the growth potential of SMEs in those markets, Benjamin? I think it depends a little bit on what solutions are already there. So if you look at markets like India, you know, firms like Paytm already started to sort of solve that problem. And yeah, it's okay, you know, some of that involves phones. But of course, most small businesses have phones. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, I think, you know, anything where you're taking out the hardware is potentially simplifying things, potentially reducing costs, potentially making it more accessible. So there is a huge opportunity there if there are more merchants you can help. I mean, we saw how, um, you know, Square and SumUp and so on enabled a whole load of tiny merchants across developed markets mm-hmm. to start taking money at market stalls and so on. It meant that for consumers, you got the convenience of suddenly you could pay with your card. You know, we were kind of knocking the card networks a tiny bit earlier, but actually cards are incredibly convenient. And I think this creates, you know, further opportunity in emerging economies for that same kind of speed uh, if it enables more people to pay easily. Yeah, it, it shouldn't be understated that the banking experience in uh, some of the MENA markets has been less than stellar. And yeah. uh, in, indeed, there are some lazy incumbents that uh, could probably do with this kick up their backside. And this is a Y Combinator graduate. So uh, we have seen them uh, kind of do that. And in their Y Combinator uh, pitch, they describe themselves as square minus the hardware. Um, so which I think is an interesting way of doing it. I'm going to come to you, Claire, on this. Um, you know, small businesses, again, we're on that theme of uh, underserved small Small businesses seems to be seems to be a trend globally as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I think anything that is enabling those small businesses um, to to get paid and get paid efficiently is is always uh, going to be positive. It just depends on the fees and the charges and and you know what their core target market is. I'm I'm not sure what their FX rates are like, for example, and that's certainly what we see as being a massive issue within, say, the creator economy because so much is transacted across borders. Um, and I think that's something really that needs a little bit of attention too. But really, uh, giving any of these SMEs or SMBs in the US that opportunity to to uh, be able to receive payments in a more uh, seamless way is is, is going to be very positive for sure. And I think there's something interesting about being able to accept international payments for people that work in the tourism industry, for instance. Suddenly now you support everything that Western tourists use when they're traveling to see you. Um, so it can be super powerful that a small merchant at the roadside now suddenly has um, global access to to that marketplace in a world where people are increasingly cashless. Uh, so it, it does it does definitely open some things up. Uh, Emily, what were your thoughts on this one? I mean, it sounds like an interesting proposition. I'd be keen to sort of learn more about it, but I'm a little bit skeptical as to, you know, how far it can grow. Um, because I think that it is very unlikely that businesses already in this space, like Square and ISSO and SumUp, haven't thought of this before. Mm. And we do have competitors that kind of go directly to merchants, people like Shopify, who are really trying to make the pro- checkout process part of that as well. Um, 
So in terms of how far it can grow, I mean, it's not, a, I'd, I'd be interested to see what their kind of proprietary tech is like, because there needs to kind of be a, a way that kind of puts them ahead of the pack. And at the moment, as we've said, they've only just kind of graduated from Y Combinator, they're in seed stage. I do wonder whether they'll just be acquired. That's interesting. That acquisition route is 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 super interesting because uh, one of the big challenges that the the mega sort of fintech businesses on the SMB side have is they're great so long as you're in the West or they're great so long as you're in their home markets. But actually, uh, it's quite surprising to people in, in the US that Stripe or Shopify in the US is a completely different beast to what it is in some of the Eastern European markets or uh, certainly in Asia Pacific and, and completely not in other markets. And that again, that's why they're raising so much so that they can get to those markets. But maybe one of the best ways there is M&A. Um, so we have seen in past Y Combinator um, classes an awful lot of uh, kind of Oh, it's like Square, but for this market. Um, and so X for Y is is definitely a trend, but you need that local market knowledge to be able to execute on some of these things. So do the do the mega players come and uh, come and do the acquisition? Emily, to your point. Yeah, I mean, we've also seen now a lot of our fintech companies from the early days of fintech are growing up. They're getting to the point now where M&A is really all they're focused on because they might be heading to market soon to publicly list their shares. But M&A is really at the forefront. Starling Bank is one of the, the key ones. They've reportedly just spent a billion on, an, on another mortgage loan book, having already acquired 150 million earlier this year. Um, and so with that in mind, if you're trying to differentiate your product against existing incumbents, in, in, in quote marks there, because obviously Square and ISO and some up would be considered, I guess, incumbents in this space, but tech forward and others. Um if you're going to try and compete with them, you have to also keep in mind that those businesses strategy at the moment probably leans more towards acquisition than anything. You are going to be a prime target for that and how they intend to grow going forward. Um, so setting yourself out is going to be quite difficult, I think. Interesting stuff. Well, you did mention stalling there, and it is time to get to the part of the show where we quickly round up some other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover in depth but deserve a shout out. Uh, Benjamin, do you want to get us started with the next one? Yes. So our first story is in fact the story that Emily just uh, just mentioned about Starling snapping up a one billion pound mortgage book uh, ahead of its flotation next year. So the startup, obviously founded by Anne Bowden, as most people listening to this will know, in 2014, uh, is understood to have bought the home loans portfolio from Kensington Mortgages, which is a British specialist lender. Surprise! Um, that focuses on mortgages for customers who might not get the best deals elsewhere, and those who are overlooked by high street banks, such as the self-employed. So people like the very creators that Claire was, um, is, is helping. Um, the deal is part of a big push by Starling to grow ahead of a stock market listing that could come next year or in 2023. Um, it followed the bank's first acquisition, which Emily also mentioned when it bought fleet mortgages um, for £50 million in shares and cash. Um, so yeah, to the point Emily was just making, super interesting. Um, mortgages lending is where banks historically make most of their money. Uh, it's logical for, for Starling to, to expand in that direction. Um, I imagine they've gone over these books quite carefully because you know you can buy a, a lending book and find that it's full of you know full of worms. Um, but I imagine they've gone through them quite carefully. But I think it's you know it's interesting. It'll give them a bit more of a book. It'll give them some profitability, um, and it'll give them some insight into that market. Keep watching Starling for sure. They've got the feature velocity. They're coming. They are coming. You know because only Atom has really paid attention to mortgages up till now. So it's 
of the, of, the, of the new banks in the UK. So super interesting. Indeed. Next story comes from Business Insider, and this is about N26 pulling back from the US. So they've announced their departure from the US market. The neobank entered the US market in 2019, along with big plans, and invested $29.9 million in the launch of its US operations. It amassed 500,000 customers in the region, but paused signups and implemented a waitlist in August 21. As a result of the pandemic and ensuing economic instability, N26 has struggled to make more headway in the U.S. market. The co-CEO and co-founder Maximilian uh, told Business Insider that the German digital bank would no longer be focusing on U.S. expansion, but instead it would be doubling down on its presence in Europe. Back in May 2020, N26 slimmed down its New York offices by 10% and let go of its U.S. CEO, Nicholas Kopp. With withdrawal from the U.S. market was confirmed by the German publication Finance Forward. When N26 entered the U.S. market, most um, U.S. Uh, fintech nerds and commentators just went, ill yuck, um, because don't you come over here telling us you know about banking was a little bit of what was going on. But also N26's route to market was largely, uh, we're going to spend loads on advertising and not really differentiate and stand out. Um, this is an organization that has now recently raised another $900 million to double down on Europe. So no doubt they'll go on and be successful. Um, but the U.S. market is... Uh, a lot more nuanced and doesn't take uh, kindly to people coming in and telling their market is broken. And that probably um, really set off the the sort of the early adopters in fintech who would have adopted the thing and turned them against them in, in quite a way. Um, and there's no amount you can spend on buses or marketing that overcomes not having that early adopter crowd really uh, evangelizing for your product. So um Good luck to N26 redoubling down on their efforts. And you know who knows, maybe we will get the Beatles of fintech coming in the not-too-distant future. I'm looking at B2B players like Kodak, uh, who've left Europe and gone to the US to, to be the Beatles of fintech or the Adele of fintech. Now, that's a, a headline, isn't it? <laughs> um, all right, next story, Benjamin. Okay, so the next story is, uh, again, from the UK. This one came from Altfi. And this is that the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK is delaying the introduction of Variable Recurring Payments, or VRPs, um, by another six months after the new trustee of the Open Banking Implementation Entity, Charlotte Crosswell, warned that most, if not all, of the the so-called CMA9, which is the big UK banks, would not meet the 31st of January 2022 deadline. Um, so these variable recurring payments, VRPs, are the latest technology in open banking, said to rival direct debits and are just in their infancy with customers being able to choose when and where they set up their own payment limits. Um, accepting the recommendations, the banks will instead be required to share a detailed delivery plan by January 2022 and be ready to start third-party testing in the first quarter of next year. Firms will have to have completed the testing phase by the end of July, six months after the initial deadline. Oh, what a shock. The banks couldn't get it done in time. What a giant shock. No, credit to the banks. It's They've got a lot of complexity to deal with. It's not easy to deliver some of this stuff. but uh... There's a lot of legacy complexity. I sort of get it, and it's sort of frustrating because you know that there are people inside the banks trying really, really hard to make it work, and there are some other people in the banks really trying to make sure it doesn't work. Yeah. And um, who knows who won? Well, I think we know who won because it's just been delayed by six months. So just frustrating. A quick shout-out for VRP for our um, US listeners and and listeners around the world. Essentially, in the US, this would be like auto-pay via open banking. This allows you to set up a recurring payment, uh, but via open banking. Imagine if Plaid had that in the US. This is 
where we are in Europe right now. We have deep payments infrastructure available via open banking as an abstraction from those banks. So this is frustrating for a lot of fintechs because it's a really powerful technology. You could basically build buy now, pay later on open banking right now because I could check your identity and your previous transaction uh, history through open banking and the data side, and then I can set up the recurring payments through VRP. So it would be very cool if, when it eventually does arrive. Okay, uh, and finally, story. Uh, this comes from The Hollywood Reporter because we're, you know, we're, we're feeling it. We're, we're changing our publications now and then. Sorry to financial news, but you know we've got to we've got to branch out now and then. Miramax has sued Quentin Tarantino over Pulp Fiction NFTs. Uh, of course, Tarantino announced uh, plans earlier this month to release seven NFTs based on the film, um, and NFTs will also contain Pulp Fiction art and commentary from Tarantino himself. Miramax says that it sent a cease and desist letter to the director after the announcement to no avail. The studio claims that its discussion about forging NFT partnerships based on the library and that Tarantino's agreement devalues those efforts. The Tarantino collection has been launched in partnership with SCRT Labs and Secret Network, which are trying to create a type of NFT with secret content embedded into it, which is really freaking cool if you want to go down the rabbit hole. Um, in response to the letter from Miramax, Tarantino's uh, attorney argued that the director was acting within his reserved rights so I thought NFTs weren't IP, um, and yet we seem to be having IP wars about it. What's going on, guys? What are your thoughts, Claire, when you saw this? Another NFT headline, um, but quite a fun one, I would say. Uh, I think it's a, a taster of what's to come. Um, you know, I think it it isn't clear from the IP side, you know, where does that uh, reside? But uh, it's a natural home, the NFT being stapled to the ownership around uh, the IP. Certainly what we see, obviously, having, you know, we've got 40 million plus pieces of creative content on our platform. And, and naturally, we're we're looking into how, how we can help monetize that. And does NFTs make sense? And having it on the blockchain and being able to verify the ownership seems like a natural place. But I think looking at the contract that Tarantino signed, it was, I think, a little bit gray. Indeed it is. Uh, Benjamin, thoughts? You know something's arrived when people start suing each other about it. You know, I, mean, and I, I, lo I love the way that Americans or, or certain American businesses, you know, go to the, go to the courts almost immediately. Yeah. But the fact that um, they care enough about it shows that NFTs are serious. And, and there are countless IP lawyers that have said this isn't real intellectual property. If you own an NFT, you don't own a thing, and yet somebody believes that you do when it's their thing that you suddenly own a little piece of. So how about that? Um, really, really interesting. There's so many um, other brands now. Now, launching NFTs for what they do. Warner Brothers has teamed up with Nifties. Uh, Marvel's launched Spider-Man NFTs. Ghostbusters is put, putting out mini NFTs. Um, but the really exciting stuff is uh, the artists and the creatives that are doing things that are uh, sort of crypto-native. Uh, so there's a great... Um, Conversation I heard with Chris Dixon of Andreessen Horowitz, who was talking about we're in the skeuomorphic phase of uh, crypto and NFTs. So if you remember the days of the early iPhone, all of the apps looked like the thing that they would look like in the real world. So your newsreader looked like a newspaper, your um, mm -hmm. book reader looked like a mm -hmm. bookshelf. This is the skeuomorphic phase. We're taking uh, his content that wasn't crypto-native and we're making it look like it exists in this world. But now we're getting crypto-native artists creating crypto-native art that changes over time. 
So um, it might be generative art. It might change based on an algorithm. It might change based on today's time and date. So whoever holds it only has a unique piece for that period of time. And where does that go? And that could be hugely exciting. So the brands that are looking at this are doing copy-paste of what they used to do with merchandising and digital collectibles. Really exciting to see where they could go uh, once the content is born in NFTs and exists as an NFT. Um, that could be could be where we start to go. And maybe it's the gaming space that, that does that first or somewhere like that. It's the obvious place to start, isn't it? It is. There are crypto native games like, of course, uh, Axie Infinity that are starting to do this. But have a look at Star Atlas if you want to go down the rabbit hole properly. There's a whole world that's based on an NFT and a crypto economy um, that's a massively multiplayer online game. So, uh, you know, the, the old saying, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. Uh, certainly, Claire, with what you're saying with creators, um, they're making a, a decent income and living off NFTs. So it does feel like it's here to stay. All right. So quick my quiz for you, Claire, which movie-related NFT would you want to bid on? Oh, that's a good one. I wish you could come back and I forgot to think about it. Um, my favourite movie of all time, and given the time of year, I think it's almost appropriate, uh, is Elf. Oh, that's a good <laughs> call. Benjamin, can you follow that? Uh, I'm going to have to think of a Christmas movie, aren't I? Um, something like It's a Wonderful Life, but I, I don't know. Oh, wow. Classic. You always it's, 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 the last, it's the last film that has a banker as the hero in it. It's about 1950. It's the last time a banker has been a hero in a film. Well, that's a reference for you. I'm going to go Jingle All the Way because Arnold Schwarzenegger. In fact, maybe Jingle All the Way too, because nobody watched that movie and it was terrible, but I had to pick a weird reference and there you go. There's no such thing as a terrible Christmas movie. <laughs> that is a scientific fact. Um, alrighty, um, that wraps up this week's new show. So thank you so much to our guests. Where can people find out more about you? I'm going to start with Benjamin. So I am on LinkedIn and I am on 11fs.com. Claire? I am on LinkedIn as well and you can find me at Talent House. Fantastic. And Emily, where can people find out more about you? You can read all my stories on fnlondon.com or you can find me on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole. Fantastic. And as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or you can find out more at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening. Do remember to join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com if there's anything you think we should be covering. Thank you so much and bye for now. Bye.